Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. I screwed up. I admit it. Early in my career, fresh out of medical school and in my residency in emergency medicine, I was told, you and your colleagues in emergency medicine are under-treating pain. That was considered the biggest problem in our specialty. There were doctors older and wiser than me who said this. And so when I served as vice chair of the Council of Legislation for the California Medical Association, I followed this expertise. We were told we must pass legislation to mandate pain education for all physicians and eliminate triplicate prescriptions that were a roadblock to prescribing stronger opioid prescriptions. And we did that. I caved. And I also became one of the first to be more liberal to prescribe opioids. There's no doubt that I was one of the many physicians who, with good intentions, wrote prescriptions for opioids that ended up doing harm instead of good. But then it became ridiculous. In 2013, I counted 20% of all my patients in the emergency department were there to get opioids, all with a variety of different excuses. I started to wonder why was only the oxycodone pills falling into the pool and never the amoxicillin antibiotics. There was drama in the middle of our hallways with patients screaming, I know my rights, I'm not a drug addict, and we got threats, I'm going to get you fired if I don't get the drugs I need. It wasn't until community leaders not in medicine reached out to me that I learned that there were people angry with us for injuring them from liberal opioid prescribing. I got to see the other side of the population, not just from patients demanding prescriptions. Was I duped by Big Pharma? I never had a salesman knocking on my door. We don't let them in the emergency department. And I never had fancy dinners or trips from opioid sales representatives. Although thinking further, I do remember once in 1989 that my husband, as a dental student, received free opioid pill samples for Lorset, a prescription drug of opioids, and he got a prescription pad with the, all the information on how to prescribe written already so he doesn't have to cramp his hand and he could just sign his name and give it to patients. I was one of the first physicians to resist this trend. And when I did, I was told by colleagues that I was not compassionate. They were more compassionate for prescribing, but they were wrong. They did not see the death toll from the medical examiner's office. They did not talk to mothers who lost their sons or daughters from a prescription that was written by a doctor who thought they were being compassionate. Dr. Jessica Andrusitis has a related question to High Truths. Hello, my name is Jessica Andrusitis. I am a recent graduate from an emergency medicine residency training program. I'm currently doing a fellowship in multimedia design, education, and technology at UC Irvine. And I have a question. Pharmaceutical companies should have public health interests as their primary mission on the one hand, 
but they still have, as we all know, a drive for profit on the other hand. The opioid epidemic highlighted how corruption of money over health can cause an epidemic. How do we prevent something like this happening again in the future? Wow, Dr. Andrositis, that is an insightful question. And I wish I was thinking like that at the beginning of my medical career. To answer your question, I have the perfect high truth experts. Gerald Posner is author of Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. He's an award-winning investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author. Pharma gives a withering and encyclopedic indictment of the drug industry. Posner is a graduate in political science from the University of California at Berkeley and law degree from Hastings Law School. He did pro bono work for several years on behalf of twins of Nazi experiments at Auschwitz, which led him to write his first book in 1986, Mengele, The Complete Story. Over time, Posner went from being a Wall Street lawyer to being a best-selling nonfiction author. He works with his wife, Trish, and has been a contributor to NBC, The History Channel, CNN, Fox News, CBS, and MSNBC. Gerald Posner, welcome to High Truths. Great to be with you. It's a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you and your listeners. And Gerald, your book, Pharma, is really an encyclopedic history of the pharmaceutical industry. And reading pharma took me down memory lane of my own career as a physician, chapter by chapter, from antibiotic resistance to betadine scrubs, AIDS, insulin, swine flu, and of course, the opioid epidemic. And pharma was clearly a huge undertaking on your part. What are some of the hidden realities you uncovered in pharma in, in your investigation? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it turned out to be uh, the history of the pharmaceutical industry, a, a more nuanced, although the subtitle says the greed lies in the poisoning of America, it's not quite as simple and straightforward as that. I mean, there's some tremendous innovation and brilliance that takes place sometimes in the laboratory. And then it runs in occasionally to a little bit of greed or over-marketing in the boardroom or in the marketing department. And so there's a conflict often. We, we have medicine and, and the drug industry is a for-profit business, which is fine. Uh, but in the US, we have it almost in some ways in, in a no-holds-barred situation, meaning that we are the only country on the planet, as you well know, that allows drug manufacturers to set their own prices with their, they have unbridled authority to do that. If they set it too high and insurance won't cover it, then it won't be a successful product. But the government doesn't come in and regulate that. There's no negotiation over that price as there is in other countries with medical bureaus or national health or, or different situations. So we have an industry that on the one hand is at the intersection of public health, delivering a, a product that's so important in many cases uh, for terminal illnesses and for, for helping people with chronic diseases and saving people with infections. And we know it better, can't know it any better than with vaccinations in a pandemic as we have now with COVID. But at the same time, sometimes is overcharging or ignoring accumulating side effects as they start to compile and has a little bit of loose regulatory ability from the FDA. So there are these conflicts time and time again that shake public confidence. And that's why I find it such a fascinating history, because it is a bit of brilliance and medical discovery and, 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 and things that we rely on and need at the same time that it runs into a wall occasionally and makes us shake our head and wonder what can be done to make it better. What are like the, the key, I don't you know, there are so many different drugs. What, what, which one of those really stood out for you the most? 
as showing like here's a best example of a problem. Well, I mean, in the some opioids. ways, yeah, the opioids is the one that we think of as most often because it's a drug that's not necessarily a life-saving drug, but a drug for quality of life that makes a tremendous difference. Terminal end-of-life pain, something that people try to treat, and then all of a sudden you get a long, you know, release, slow-release opioid that's marketed for more than end-of-life terminal cancer pain, it's, and it starts to get marketed for for moderate pains and osteoarthritis and things for which it wasn't necessarily approved in clinical trials. And it's greatly overprescribed, and we know the the problems with that. But often, it's even earlier drugs. I think so that some of the drugs that come out and start off as wonder drugs, I and mean, clearly antibiotics, penicillin, one of the greatest discoveries in human history, and one of the most important. It changes everything and makes modern pharmaceutical industry. But as a result of overprescribing it, starting in the 1950s and 60s, from everything from sniffles to the cough to whatever, when people had viruses as opposed to really having a bacterial infection, we were unwittingly, in most cases, building up antibiotic resistance, which we now have a problem with with, with superbugs for the last 15 years and will only continue to get worse. Even on things like the first lifestyle drug, uh, let's say in terms of an oral contraceptive, when when Cyril ends up coming up with the drug in 1960, that's fantastic and gives women reproductive control uh, over their decisions about whether they're going to have children or not. They then, uh, you know, hide the the accumulating evidence of blood clots and uh, uterine cancer that are coming in, and it's not for 15 years until that becomes public. So there's a drug that should never have had any problem associated with it. But when it does, they don't aggressively tackle it. They try to hide the information. The same thing happens with hormone replacement therapy in the early days with Wyeth. So, you know, you can go through a series, benzodiazepines, wonder drug in terms of being a mild tranquilizer that's going to help a lot of people. But what happens? We tend to overuse things that are the wonder and make top drugs. It becomes a best-selling drug. Then it gets diverted a little bit to the black market. Then people use it too much. Same thing happens with with diet pills in the 60s and diet clinics run by doctors. So, you know, when you say a single drug, it seems to me that part of the pharmaceutical industry's history is coming up with a drug that often is a life-saving drug like an antibiotic or a lifestyle drug that is very important like an oral contraceptive. And then something goes wrong and either in terms of over-prescribing it, using it for too many purposes, or ignoring some of the side effects that come back in. And what starts out as a wonder drug, like with Valium, for instance, um, becomes a nightmare 15 or 20 years later. And that's what's happened with opioids as well. Yeah. You know, you bring up the point with all these drugs is we tend to be a pill happy society, uh, Americans more than other countries. Don't didn't you see that? Yeah, I think that's true. My my wife, Tricia, is also an author and researches with me and she's British. Uh, so um, she they have a thing where they don't like taking tablets, as they call them at often. Oh, you're taking a tablet for something. I understand that. Uh, and I the. I think, you know, years ago, she has an increased risk of breast cancer in her family. All the women in her family have had breast cancer. So she went through menopause. She didn't take hormone replacement therapy because it increased her chance of having an estrogen-based tumor. As, but as a result, she had to do a lot of things to try to control hot flashes and other items and herbal remedies and, and in meditation and exercise. For most people, if you showed them what Trisha had to go through, or you said to them, by the way, here's one pill, HRT 
take that and you'll be fine. People are going to take the pill. They look for the simpler way. And one of the great benefits that I think the pharmaceutical industry has is they can offer a one pill solution. Now, with that solution comes, of course, a list of side effects and, and interactions and counter interactions with other drugs. But if you're trying to lower your cholesterol and somebody tells you, by the way, you need to lose 20 pounds, by the way, avoid the fried food and forget about the nitrates and don't have too much barbecue. Somebody else says, by the way, why don't you just take this pill and you might be able to lower your cholesterol and still eat all the junk you want. People tend to do the, the latter. So the, the one pill offering, I think, is very seductive for a lot of people, especially in this society. It's a simple fix. And pharma plays to that very, very well. And it starts in childhood. I mean, as soon as your child has a little cough or sniffle or something, you need to give the child something instead of giving it uh, its course. And by the way, Trish, um, I'm just like you. I don't need to take any <laughs> pills. And by the way, that's contrary to how I was um, taught in medical school. It's like you reach that age, you need to have um, this hormone replacement therapy. And that was standard of care. And so I'm actually bucking you know, the system by, by not doing that and questioning that. Um, but um, your, your book, Pharma, is really amazing. I encourage all the listeners to read it, really learn about the fascinating history of all prescription drugs and the industry. It's in-depth and, and detailed and, and amazing. Um, I want to um, give you a question from one of our listeners, Dr. Jessica Andrusitis. She's a high-truth listener and has a great question. He says, the pharmaceutical companies have public health interest on one hand, but a drive for profit on the other. And the opioid epidemic highlighted how corruption over money, um, over health, resulted in tragedy. And how can we prevent something like this happening again? What are your the lessons that you learned for Dr. Andrusitis and my medical colleagues as well? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And you know, it's, it's an unusual business, remember, in the sense that this is the only business that I know of in which the manufacturers of the product are not selling directly to the end consumer. The end consumer in this case are patients. They have to go through you, the doctors. So they can't just go ahead and they can advertise to us directly since 97 with direct to consumer advertising, but they can't sell to us. So they have to convince you, the doctors to prescribe it. Then they have to advertise to us. So we will go in and ask you about the newest, latest and greatest, and you'll prescribe it to us. And I think that there are instances in pharmaceutical past that are admirable in which profits were made, but they didn't become the dominant item that you were chasing. They weren't the top priority. George Merck, the great grandson of the founder of Merck, had told a graduating class of doctors in the 1950s that if you follow medicine and you put patients first, the profits will follow. Now, that was viewed as sort of an antiquated view, but Merck was a very successful company. Roy Vagelis, who was a doctor who ran, he ran Merck, gave away a medication for river blindness to the third world that a lot of people thought for a public company was a crazy thing to do because it was millions of dollars in cost. Why would you create a medicine and then give it away? He did that. Not everything's about profit, but then you get the other side of the case in which you get like the Sackler family, who are the private owners of Purdue Pharma with their blockbuster drug OxyContin. And there's a case in which they they sort of keep hitting the sales team, the detailed people, the, the men and women going out to visit doctors to increase their numbers and increase the numbers that they're selling and show how they're able to get more and more prescribed and, and sort of have the, the number of pills that are given for specific areas multiplied by, by times, not worried about the patients as much as they are about the bottom line. So 
when you get a drug that's addictive at the same time, and it's the only drug you have that's a success as a company, because for instance, Purdue did not have a long bench of other drugs waiting for them. It's $35 billion in sales from the time it went on sale in 1996 through 2019. The family became billionaires, $14 billion, according to, to Forbes. And when that's what you're chasing as a top priority, it's problematic. How do you stop that? You stop it, of course, with a much more diligent FDA, who at times was lethargic about the response, for instance, to the opioid crisis, uh, fought with the DEA over whether, in fact, uh, OxyContin and other long-term release opioids were as addictive as some thought. And uh, you also try to control it with over-prescribing doctors, which there are some who turn it into a pill mill, and, the, and later they will lose their license, but it takes a while for that to happen. There are pharmacies in which there were problems. There are distributors. There's there's Cardinal Health, there's a, you know Amerisaurus Bergen. Some of the biggest companies in the country know exactly where every pill is going. They know when a small pharmacy in Kentucky with a town population of 5,000 is getting 2 million pills and something's wrong, but they're not reporting it because they aren't obligated to. So there's a whole series of things in the what can be done to fix it routine. And I'm surprised that Congress, the presidency, state legislatures haven't done more to plug up some of those loopholes. That is amazing. And and I, I hear what you're saying true, again, not just for opioids, but for anything. The, the problem is, you know, it's really a top level approach that you're proposing. As a physician, how do I know that I'm not getting, you know, being told that I should prescribe naloxone eight milligrams, a new formulation, instead of the traditional naloxone two milligrams? Um, um, and it, I mean, to me right now, it just sounds like a pro for for-profit uh, change, but you know, even as physicians, we wouldn't necessarily know that, and how would consumers know that? No, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the most interesting things is that clearly the business is built around the idea and Congress's idea on this through the 60s when they did the, the big reforms in 1962, they were first focused on pricing, then they, they did it instead on safety. They institute the clinical trials and the slow process of approval. Drugs have to show that they're actually doing what they claim they do for therapeutic purposes. That was never required before. They have to show a higher standard of safety. Even when that is all put through, the idea is that doctors are trained so well, they know the science, they know the medicine, they know the drugs, they will be able to make the decision as to whether the advertising is a little too aggressive or is false. And you know, that, that turns true. out, yeah, it's not true, it's impossible, you're overwhelmed. You have your practices, you're in an ER service yourself, others are running full-time practices, they're on hospital services, or doing the, the number of drugs coming out are too and great. The, the opioid epidemic proved that. And I really saw that firsthand. When, when I was young in my career, it's like, okay, I'm gonna do what the older doctors do. And then I realized that that's not smart. And watching and really learning from the opioid epidemic, doctors are not that much smarter than the public when all that comes. We're getting the same information as everybody else. We, we think we are smarter, but we're really, we're really not. And, and I think you're susceptible sometimes to the, you know, what detail teams will end up uh, telling you and what's taking place. I mean, there's that great loophole inside the, the pharmaceutical medical field, and that is uh, the ability to do off-label dispensing. Uh, so put aside uh, all of the, the items that are controlled substances, you're pretty much able in your expertise as physicians to take a drug that you're using for one purpose that's been approved by the FDA for X and say, okay, I think it's going to work for Y. And sometimes some great 
drugs have been found that way and occasionally just side uses of drugs drugs that were originally meant for hypertension that ended up um, growing hair for somebody or led to erectile dysfunction drugs that weren't originally intended for that have made a lot of money for corporations uh, botox is a perfect example of a drug approved as an orphan drug for a very small purpose for involuntary eye twitches that later becomes a cosmetic drug for allergen and makes them billions of dollars so all that aside sometimes you will pick up as a physician the, the off-label use of a drug that's becoming popular, you become in essence the test field, the clinical trial in an ongoing way for the pharmaceutical company who takes great interest in watching it, but they aren't necessarily going back to the FDA and asking for that. And I think that's what's so interesting is that the drug companies realize that they can't really come into you and say, by the way, don't do the two milligram dose, do an eight milligram dose, it's turning out to be more effective. If they want to do that, they should be going back before the FDA with a clinical trial, getting approval for the new dosing, and then coming to you and saying, this is the dosage approved. So I found that that particularly happened in, in the opioid crisis, for instance. You would get representatives from, and this include Johnson & Johnson, Teva, a number of the manufacturers, particularly Purdue, who would go to physicians and say, by the way, we're showing great success with this with osteoarthritis. Now, in fact, the, the, the trials that they had submitted to the FDA in trying to get approval in 96 showed that it was not effective for osteoarthritis. Uh, they then claimed that they had some results in Europe in a non-randomized, non, uh, not a double-blind study, not the gold standard, that showed it was effective. There were physicians who listened to that, but when you actually dig under a little bit underneath the hood, you find out there's very little evidence to support it. So the drug is getting prescribed for osteoarthritis, even though the FDA hasn't approved it. The company can't go back to the FDA for approval because they know they really don't have the scientific studies to do it. Yet still, they're pushing the envelope by by telling physicians that, and you don't have the time as a physician to go out and do your own independent research on top of that most of the time. So you might yet rely on the word of a pharmaceutical rep if you happen to otherwise trust them. Right. Or or actually, mostly, I, like I rarely have contact with pharmaceutical reps and we don't let them in the emergency department for sure. majority of, I think probably all of my career. Um, but it'd be like another colleague who may have then heard it from a pharmaceutical company so it goes that way and off-label use it's important I, i'm trying to think coming to mind right now what i used yesterday as my last shift is i'll use um haldol or as a prep cannabis hyperemesis syndrome and um and it works so i mean that sometimes we you know we need we need to do that and, it, and it, it's great um to be able to that's right and i think you in the er departments often you're the front lines i mean Pharmaceutical companies understand this, that the off-labeling use is very, very important. So I, I tend to think that for the most part, that works very well. Um, but it sometimes gives the, the company, so I mean, for instance, Allergan and Botox is, is a good example. The, it happens to fall into that unusual category that you're so well aware of, of an orphan drug. So originally approved as an orphan drug. I like the idea of orphan drug statutes in the 1980s. You know, Congress says, hey, you know what, there are these small patient populations that have rare genetic diseases and no pharmaceutical company is really making a drug for them because it's too small. There's not enough profit in it. We may be talking only a few hundred people, a couple of thousand, in some instances, even less. So they, they passed the orphan drug law in order to encourage company, companies to focus on these small drug populations by giving them tax incentive tax credits, a longer seven year period on top of the regular patent, an expedited process for approval before the FDA, all of these things. Sounds good. And 
and it is for the most part, but companies learn after a while how to, what I say, game it. And Allergan's a perfect example. They do nothing illegal. They just know where the lines are for, for pushing it forward. So they originally get Botox approved for a uh, as an orphan drug for this involuntary eye spasm. And then they get another orphan drug approval for it a couple of years later on a similar item with sort of involuntary spasms at the throat. They've moved it along. And then when it starts, when some doctors notice that in their patients, there aren't as many crow feet or wrinkles around the eyes or at the, the forehead, and it starts to be used off-label for cosmetic purposes, Allergan doesn't go for 10 years before the FDA to get an approval for that drug, but nearly 80% of the profits from, from Botox were coming from the off-label use, which is an astonishing amount. At no time does the FDA then go in and say, by the way, you're selling most of this drug for an unapproved use. Please go ahead and conduct the trials to make sure that it's safe. Finally, they did that, and they did get it approved as a, you know, a general drug for that purpose. But I do think that one of the things that's missing is if you're using it off-label, let's say using Haldel, for instance, as you said on this, when it comes to cannabis, uh, the problem with cannabis, if that became widespread use and the companies manufacturing Haldel were making three quarters of their, their revenue from the off-label use, at some point, the FDA has to say to them, you need to come before us and, and show us the evidence that this should be an approved use, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And um, you, you highlighted uh, the beginning when we started to talk about the ridiculous uh, price gouging of pharmaceutical drugs in the United States. Um, when I worked at the White House, I realized that federal workers have really the best health insurance in the country, and that's not available to the average American. As a federal employee, for example, I had uh, needed an asthma inhaler and it was for free. But as a physician purchasing my own health insurance, that same inhaler would cost me more than $50 at a local pharmacy or $10 if I bought it at Canada. So you kind of explain, but can you go again? And, you, and I know that in your book, you have even way more egregious examples of the astronomical drug prices in our country. I, so some of it has been, I mean... It, it's unusual in that the very same drug in the United States will always cost more than the very same drug abroad. I know that's hard to imagine. It sounds like an overstatement because you think there it's must be. It's absolutely true. I've, I've done that with my own medications. It's ridiculous. I don't understand. <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, even, even victims of the opioid crisis are sometimes surprised to find out that they may pay more for OxyContin in the United States than their neighbors did in Canada or the UK or anywhere else. So even when it came to something like oxycodone, which you would think is a very inexpensive generic, you know, oxycodone is the the active ingredient inside. Uh, it's not an expensive drug to manufacture, but still is priced at a higher price point here. Uh, just as a matter of fact, uh, when Re Regeneron and other drugs were put out, uh, as you know, in the early part for therapeutic purposes uh, under um, the in the pandemic, they were priced at $3,300, let's say, for a five-day treatment in the U.S. and $2,200 abroad. So it's just the way that the, the business operates because they can in some ways. One of the things that boosted prices in the U.S. is that we have these unusual middle strata called pharmacy benefit managers that exist nowhere else in the world except for here. And when I say that, I don't mean just a couple of individuals who are doing paperwork. They originally started out in the 80s as almost what I call payroll processors. They went to big companies like IBM, Ford Motor and others. And they said, by the way, managed insurance is coming out, insurance companies in that you're going to have to apply for all of your employees, millions of employees uh, over time. The, the different processes for applications for drugs and what drugs are approved and everything else, it's all this new paperwork. We can process the paperwork. We'll be like payroll processors. 
Great. So they got in in the 80s. And then over time, they said to the companies and the insurance companies, we can also uh, come up with the formularies, the drugs that are approved for different uh, policies, depending on what they are. Mm -hmm. Once they had that power, they were really in a great power. So today, pharmacy benefit managers get rebates often from drug manufacturers uh, in order to put a drug on the formulary, not because it's the cheapest drug, the best drug, but because it's the drug for which they've received a rebate with no transparency requirement. It's not illegal for them not to disclose that to the pharmacist or to anyone else. And as a result, we we have an inflation of drug prices by the fact that they are involved in about 85 to 90 percent of all of the, the prescriptions that are given in managed care around the country and in private insurance as well. Uh, and in addition, we have a reformulation of what I call orphan drugs. People have found orphan drugs that have come off of patents and then they have taken and slowly raised the price to see if it will stand the market. And it does. Uh, we've had everything from EpiPens, which aren't orphan drugs, which have gone up in price by sevenfold. And people had trouble explaining why that was the case. Um, to insulin, which uh, we thought when we had uh, synthetic insulin, there'd never be a shortage again. And yet we continue, continue to see spikes that at times are eye, eye boggling. So. Uh, it's hard for me to explain in every situation why we have it. Sometimes it's greed, sometimes it's supply chain problems, and sometimes there are shortages, but there's no doubt whatever the price is here, you're going to find it cheaper somewhere else. It's interesting. You bring up the pharmacy beneficiary manager. I, I am an advisor in a committee for um, a large Medicaid um, health plan here, and um, they present all the data. And just like you say, we approve the formularies, but we we make decisions based on price for the health plan, um, you know, to make it cheaper for the health plan. Um, and then I think that that goes down for the, the patients as well um, who are not paying. So I'll have to look into that. Um, yeah, very interesting. On Medicaid, it might, it, you might have a situation in which the government, you know, the government always used to say who was the uh, the manufacturer who built the elevator in, in this building. It was the one with the lowest bid. So Medicaid might have that requirement that they have to come in with the lowest bid. Now, the question is, um, and, and this is, you know, that, that area in which I've seen pharmacy benefit managers will sometimes be able to get a rebate from a company on a given drug. And if they want to give some of that rebate back into the the pharmacy to cut the price at the end they could take a drug that's slightly more expensive than the lowest price drug and make it competitive in terms of rebate the company would essentially be subsidized yeah, we, do, we do that if it, we're getting a rebate and the overall price for the the health plan is lower we'll use that one because it's whatever is best for the health plan that's fantastic and if that was done around the country in terms of private plans as well it would be a home run it would it would end pharmacy benefit managers as a practical matter for uh, the the control that they have um the the people who are in what i call the line for the manufacturer all the way down to the patient in terms of finally getting the the medication dispensed the person in the profit line there who's at the greatest disadvantage with uh, with pharmacy benefit managers is the pharmacist believe it or not you know pharmacies today are basically these large retail chains but community pharmacists of which there are about twenty-two thousand still left in the u.s they often don't know uh, what the price is being paid for um, a particular drug or how much the rebate might be. They are gagged still in 19 states. They used to be gagged in all 50. Uh, they're gagged from telling a patient who walks into their pharmacy and goes to fill a prescription with their insurance that if they paid a cash price for the very same drug, it would be less than what their copay is. So you walk into a pharmacy, your copay is $40. 
If you pay cash on that, I know it sounds absolutely crazy. How could your copay be more than cash price? But it happens sometimes. The cash price might be $28. The pharmacist is barred from telling you that the cash price is less. To me, that's absolutely crazy. And that's a great consumer tip for our listeners. If you go and you're paying, uh, uh, whatever, $20 copay for your medicines, but if it's for like amoxicillin or doxycycline, it may be actually cheaper just to pay for it in cash. Um, and Dr. So interesting you say that. One of the things, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I should have said, although the pharmacist is, uh, is banned from telling you, they can't volunteer the information. They have to tell you if you ask them. So that's truly a case in which being an informed consumer is wise. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about. We're all trying to keep the best possible prices for the medications we have to take. You have to be foolish not to do so. So if you ask the question, by the way, would, my ca would a cash price for this, not putting it through insurance, be less than my copay? The worst thing that you get is an answer that says, no, your copay is less, which is fine. At least you've checked. The pharmacist is going to know you were savvy enough to ask. So you should definitely do that. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I pay cash for all my medicines because that's the kind of plan that I have. So I'm always looking at that. Um, let's talk about trust. The stories that you uncovered in pharma foster kind of a distrust. I mean, they're, 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 the system is good, actually, but not perfect. But what happens is that people don't know what to believe. And, and now we're in the COVID pandemic, and it's a great example of Americans divided and like trusting the vaccine. Should I trust it? Should I not trust it? You know, um, and you could see how that that could happen. And uh, I have to say, I'm very much in favor of the COVID vaccine. It's it's not a political issue. It's a life and death issue as far as an emergency physician telling you that. Um, but uh, you talk about vaccines and problems with that in pharma. Can uh, you and your wife, Trish, did, I'm, I'm sure you got your COVID vaccine. Right. As a matter of fact, so so interesting you say that. I write in the book about problems with vaccines, and we actually have a, a chapter called the, the Swine Flu Fiasco, about 1976, when uh, the government thought that they were going to have an outbreak of the very, very same uh, virus that it caused, you know, the, the great flu epidemic of 1917-18. Uh, it turned out not to be the case, but while they were worried about that, uh, they had four pharmaceutical companies get together and produce uh, enough vaccine to inoculate 40 million people before they, they canceled the program. And those companies wouldn't give the vaccine over to the government until they had a, a guarantee that there was a reasonable profit. And on top of that, that they were free of any side effects that were caused or any lawsuits that came in. Eventually, those did come, as you know, when there was an increase, a bump up on Guillain-Barre, which is sort of a rare neurological disorder that was increased, we found out later when that vaccine was given. I understand that vaccines always have some side effect potential. There, these vaccines were done very fast, but very thorough. And you know, you sometimes want a longer period where you can look at the the clinical test for a year versus six months. But Trish and I went ahead and got our vaccines. We were early on Pfizer. We, as a matter of fact, are six months past our second dose of our vaccine. So you weigh the evidence. You look at the science. You decide what's best. People tend to want 100% certainty, and, and that's impossible in medicine or science or anything else. So they think, oh, tell me, by the way, that I'm going to be able to get a vaccine, not have any short-term transient side effects that I don't like, and that I'm, I'm going to be absolutely protected from any serious side effects with COVID. No, you know, vaccines aren't quite the magic bullet. They are sometimes. They're wonderful on, on things like, uh, you know, change the world on polio. I understand that, and on smallpox. But we have to realize that the best we can do is look at the science, weigh the evidence, and then go forward. And there's so much misinformation out there today. Oh, yes, it's really. And part of the problem, I think, Dr. Lev, is that 
people have a distrust of pharma itself when I say that, big pharma. And they hear the, the bad stories about, you know, the opioids or some greed situation or somebody that's that's uh, that's ripped them off. They don't hear the, the good scientists. They don't realize how many people are working on, on coming up with, uh, you know, cures the really literally for cancer that can say, change the world in the coming decades in terms of genomic uh, ways of treating cancer. Uh, a lot of things that are happening that will be absolutely revolutionary. And it's unfortunate because I think that their distrust of pharma then comes into a distrust of government, which they have. So now you have government telling you, by the way, be sure to get the vaccine. And the combination of the two is enough to make them throw their their hands up in the air and they don't do it. And that's and that's unfortunate because uh, I think that that distrust works to our detriment, especially on something like we're in now with a pandemic. That's that's very true. And so you mentioned, yeah, really the great collision of distrust of pharma and distrust of government. That's That's a crash. But I think it, spills over to distrust of medicine and doctors and, and what I do. Do you think so? I, you know, I think that for some reason, I think that doctors are not, not immune, certainly not immune from it. But the reason that doctors are still held in a better overall position that, and this is a very unscientific opinion I'm giving you, meaning that from my, from my conversations with, with lay people and, and those who have responded about the book and talked about the book, they still view doctors as being the last sort of barrier of, of good behavior and important science. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't sometimes blame doctors and boy, in the opioid epidemic, you know, but those doctors are the overprescribing doctors, the doctors who sort of lost their way and somehow, you know, uh, wrote too many prescriptions. And so there's always a reason for that. But I think that doctors are held in, the, in a very high esteem and in a different way than drug companies are. Uh, and there's no doubt even if you get, and you realize this so well, you get somebody who happens to think conventional medicine, Western medicine, they don't like oleopathic medicine or whatever else. I guarantee you, if they have uh, an appendix that's about to break, they're going to end up in your ER. <laughs> and at that moment, they're, they're not worried then about all their concerns about medicine they are going to fade away when you're trying to save their life. Yeah. And I, I can say it for myself and my colleagues, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's bad apples in any profession, but most of my colleagues are into medicine or in it to help humanity and to help people and, and not for profit. I mean, we really sacrifice of ourselves um, to get into medical school, to get out and residency and years of training and debt and even, you know, jumping in, you know, feet head first to this pandemic to help out, even though we could potentially, we thought we would die from it. Um, I think most of my colleagues are like that. And we, we're there to protect the public no, as best we can, but we don't always have the right information. That's no, that's true. I think that's absolutely true. And it's very interesting that, you know, in some ways, and and there's always the counter example, but the, the three Sackler brothers who founded Purdue Pharma were all doctors. They were psychiatrists, uh, but they were very smart. They were physicians and they did, they never really practiced. Uh, they went into medical advertising. So it was there quite- There were physicians that were businessmen. They weren't clinicians. That's right. One-on-one. Yeah. On one. There's a major difference on that. Uh, and then occasionally you will have the clinician who sells out for the wrong reasons. And the example of that is a, a doctor in their 60 who was a leading gynecologist in, in New York, Robert Wilson, 
who ended up writing a best-selling book called Feminine Forever, in which he described his mother as a eunuch from uh, having a lack of estrogen during menopause and said, uh, by the way, you can change your life by taking HRT. It will uh, keep your hair thick and your skin young and keep your sexuality going. And, and that book became a massive bestseller with over a million copies and probably was the single greatest proponent for the sales of Cyril's HRT in the 60s. We didn't know for a decade that that book and his office and his work was subsidized secretly by Cyril. So, okay, wrong thing to do. But when that happens, a doctor like that, when exposed, then hurts far more than just his own reputation, but hurts the entire profession. And that's what's unfortunate. You say a few bad apples, I agree with you, a small minority, but like with every profession, whether lawyers, writers, journalists, whatever else, it's the bad ones that you sometimes come to the forefront. Yeah. You, you mentioned the FDA and the things that the FDA needs to do better. There's been some corruption that you talk about in the book within the FDA. But I have to tell you that as a physician, I have to trust them and their approval medicine. Otherwise, my whole profession and what I do is gone. So I actually think they have the best that the world has to offer. And something has an FDA approval, even oxycodone or hydrocodone, that's better than going to the streets and buying God knows what people are doing. Um, so I completely agree with you. No, the FDA stamp of approval is critical. No question about it. The, I, my, my complaint for the FDA isn't so much as corruption. I don't view it as that. Yes, there's a revolving door that takes place. And sometimes as with the case of Oxycontin, the, the officer that approved Oxycontin in 96 and gave it a really rather extraordinary language in terms of the belief that maybe a, uh, a delayed uh, release opioid might be less addictive than one that was immediate absorption. Uh, went to work for Purdue a couple of years later, l very large salary, but that's often in government service. As you know, you're, you're working over at the FAA and you end up uh, you know, working later at Boeing or that. So that happens. And it's not so much as corruption with under the table, it's that I view the FDA as overwhelmed in terms of the numbers sometimes, the number of drugs that are being submitted, the amount of information that's being submitted, the paperwork that comes in, plus their obligations of keeping track of the laboratories and manufacturing facilities in other countries that are producing generic drugs in India and China. They have so much on their plate and notwithstanding their budget and the amount of people that work there who are really well dedicated and, and try their best, it's hard to keep up with the private enterprise of, of the pharmaceutical industry. So I often think they're, they're doing catch up. They do the very best they can and that stamp of approval is critical. I agree with you, but they are up against it sometimes against drug companies that are pushing very hard um, for, uh, for an approval. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, not a conflict is the wrong word, but it's a it's a high pressure bureaucratic pipeline they're going through. Yeah. And again, I think you make good points that we can definitely make a system better and protect the public better for that. But what we have right now, when you have a FDA approved medicine and a, a warning labels and all that, I, I count on that. And I think it's it's. Um, it's the best our world has as far as doing studies and approving medicines. And so when I write a prescription and I give it to you as a patient, you go to the pharmacy, you could count on that and, yeah. and that information behind it. No, oh, and, and here's one of the things I wish. Okay. So if you say to me, what's your wish list, what would you like to see done? You know, yeah. so the, my wish list would be that the FDA today, nearly half its budget comes from what are called these expedited fees that drug companies pay. They come in and you can pay a fee now as a drug company. It's very expensive. 
it puts you on a faster track. It used to be very hard to get on that faster track. So it expedites everything across the, that's a fantastic thing. But I'd prefer to see that part of the budget, 18, $17 billion, be part of the budget from the federal government so that nobody got fast-tracked unless it was a life-saving drug. Does that mean so that essentially the FDA didn't have to depend on drug companies paying them the money to expedite the process. They'd have their budget without that. They could still expedite those instances that were important, but you couldn't expedite everything just by writing a check for it. That's a small difference. Uh, it may not change the world as we know it, but it would be nice. It's never going to happen. The, the, bureaucrats in the federal government don't want to give you extra money for your budget if they don't have to. So if the drug companies are paying for half your budget, they're happy to have that happen. I just don't know necessarily if that's always a great thing. Yes, or at least have some of that money go for oversight, not just for right. that expediting drugs. Yeah. Um, your, your last chapter of pharma is titled essentially a crime family. And that makes me think of the transition that we could talk about from pharma to analogies of, of big pharma to big marijuana. So John Stewart, CEO of Purdue, who makes oxycodone, is now banking on medical marijuana. And the public, again, I think, is being sold lies, greed, and poisoning. And really, every day, every shift, I take care of uh, patients with marijuana poisoning, psychosis, scrumming, cardiovascular collapse, lung injuries. It's really a public health disaster, and yet it is now being pushed on our society. I, I see the same reliving history of the same thing we were doing with opioids and tobacco we're doing now with marijuana. Well, yeah. I have to tell you, um, uh, you're singing the choir here with me. I, the, sometimes people say, you know, what do you think's coming up as the next, you know, you can't tell if we could always predict it, it would be different. If you knew after benzos in the 60s or diet pills was going to be, you know, uh, opioids. You don't always know, but it, but marijuana seems to be it will be the one that in five years or 10 years, uh, you have politicians sitting back and saying, oh, how did we get to this point? And and not only do you have the approval for medical I marijuana. I hope it's five or 10 years. I, I hope. As opposed to even longer. You're right. But, bit, but there's something interesting, and you know this. It's the last chapter I talk about what's coming next. But in the first couple of chapters, it's about what I call the Wild West days of, of drugs where there was no AMA and no FDA and no federal oversight. Anybody could sell any Nostrum for any purpose and and everything was legal. So you had opioids legal. I mean, Bayer had their, their trademark name in terms of uh, heroin, which was supposed to cure morphine addiction. Uh, barbiturates were, uh, were fine. Phenobarbital was sold over the counter. Cannabis was available and put into a whole series of products as well. We know the effects of that. We saw what the addiction rates were and the crime rates that went up in the late 1800s and the beginning of the, the 19th, 20th century when we had a whole host of addictive drugs, including cannabis, that were used in all types of products for every purpose. And now we're back to the stage where with cannabis, we're going from having it as a Schedule One drug, saying, okay, it was overscheduled, to saying it's good for everything. And not only is the medical marijuana, I think, a problem, but in your ER, I'm sure you're, you're ending up treating patients who come in who are victims of too much recreational marijuana. So th there are states that are approving recreational use with the only idea being that it's gonna bring in revenue for the states and it can't be that bad. And you know what? It can be that bad, but unfortunately, we're gonna to have to learn that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for, for saying that. And, I, and I, I definitely see us, and I, my, I think it took us a hundred years. I mean, you're the historian, but, from you know, first knowing about the harms of tobacco to 
you know, uh, banning it. So I'm actually hoping for 50 years with uh, with marijuana. I understand. And, and the and the thing that's quite interesting is that, you know, I mean, if you follow the money as I try to follow it often, I mean, what do you have? Uh, Philip Morris uh, is in a declining business, Altera, as it's called. They understand that cigarette consumption and smoking is going down. They still have a large profit margin. And what did they buy a couple of years ago in Canada? Uh, the largest cannabis production company in Canada for a few billion dollars. So, you know, when I see a big tobacco moving toward, you know, what could be big marijuana or big cannabis, I think to myself, you know, they understand the power of a, of a product that uh, can be uh, physiologically addictive and uh, they're moving toward it. Yeah. And as a physician, I feel like that's, I don't know, beyond mean. I mean, the people that I see, they, they don't know that they don't, you know, they're used as a pawn for profit and they're in misery in the emergency department. It's terrible. Um, yeah. Yes. And if I could say one other thing, it's very interesting that I think that one of the things that often leads to the, the, the most problematic drugs uh, and whether it turns out to have been benzos in the past or or the. the and by the way, it's, it's not benzos in the past where we're also seeing it currently. Amazing. Addiction to Xanax. When I say that that's a percent of all the deaths of benzos are from Xanax. We don't and they're not being prescribed as the FDA intended. Yeah, yeah, very. It's a very good point. You know, I think of benzos as a '60s and '70s problem. You're absolutely right. What ended Valium's reign at the top was the, all the bad press it received and the advent of Xanax. Yeah. Um, the fact that Xanax came out when the DSM was changed as well on that year to include panic attacks, and so they were able to say as that company, "Oh, we also treat panic attacks," which expanded the market for them tremendously. But you're right. So the, the, those problems continue. But one of the things I think that happens in the beginning with a drug that later becomes very problematic is that the public in particular, and sometimes the prescribing doctors, uh, view it as a, having a much more benign profile. So, uh, you know, compared to Thorazine and compared to, uh, you know, the drugs that had preceded it, uh, Librium looked like a piece of cake. Uh, what, what could possibly go wrong? Well, we know what goes wrong over the long term with too much use. But I think that you underestimate the effects of it. Uh, and then as a society, by the time you realize what's happening, the regulation of it becomes difficult because there is misprescribing and there's also diversion to the black market. And when that starts to happen, um, it compounds the problem. I was just reading the other day an article about in California, the difficulty of the illegal pot market and the, the number of times they have seized large growing plots. Now you would think in a state that has recreational marijuana and medical marijuana approved that the illegal market would go away, but no, it's still there. It's just competing for potency and price against what the the legal tax market is, so um, you know, it's actually bigger. It's bigger than the the legal market. Still amazing, right? Yeah. The it's interesting when you talked about Librium. Um, one of my medical publications is what I call the Death Diaries, looking at um, everyone in San Diego County who died from a medications and evaluating that. And one of the things that I did is do a fatality index. So I looked at all the top prescriptions from the uh, state PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, and compared them to death, deaths. And the number one uh, uh, a pill per death ratio was for Librium. Um, not necessarily because that drug is so bad, but probably because of most people who get that have severe alcohol use disorder and, and may take alcohol with whatever else and, and end up dying. But I, I think that that, 
I thought that that doing that study is invaluable because that tells me what's more, that's the most dangerous. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. You say that and as a matter of fact, one of the things, and you know, this, I discussed this in the book is that uh, Purdue, for instance, escaped some of the early attention that was, uh, was being placed on it by the drug enforcement administration. This is about 2000, 2001, the, the DEA had decided to go ahead and get from these 59 different counties around the country, um, autopsy reports of people who had died from drug overdoses and see if Oxycontin played a role. And although they then classified them by Oxycontin certain, um, Oxycontin possible, um, undecided, even on those that were they were convinced were oxycontin certain because the levels of oxycontin were high enough in the bloodstream to the exclusion of other drugs the purdue successfully argued across the board because there's as you know always a mixture it's mm -hmm. very seldom that you find somebody just with the one drug in their system right. you know so as a result the minute you would have alcohol involved at the same time maybe there was librium or xanax involved so you have you know more um uh, you know respiratory suppressants in in the entire mix purdue would say well you know oxycontin might have been one of four drugs they were using but we can't be sure that that was really what caused the fatality and for years that mixture of drugs work to the benefit of the manufacturer in terms of making sure that they they really didn't have um, too much of an onus on them for uh, for being responsible for a spike in deaths. Absolutely. And and yet, you know, and then again, I went at very laboriously through every single person who died and, and looked at that. But you sh still have to look at the aggregate. It's harder to actually prove. And I'm doing the same thing now with marijuana. So, you know, I, I looked at all, for example, small numbers, all suicides in, in teenagers age 18 to 15 to 18. 80, 70% of them were positive for THC. Did the marijuana kill them? No, the marijuana didn't kill them. It was, it was a suicide, but you have to ask your question. You know, you can't say, okay, well, let's wait 50 more years and actually prove it uh, yeah, before, you, before you see that there's a problem. Now, now, one of the things you're running into, I do think on marijuana is different than on what I call regular pharmaceutical drugs. So, you know, you, you come up with a, a drug to collo uh, control cholesterol or, or lower hypertension. Um, the manufacturer is going to make money on it. It's going to be prescribed through the system. Hospitals and insurance companies are going to pay for it and patients are going to pay for it. The government isn't necessarily making money on top of that drug, but they are making money on top of cannabis. So it's it's a tax revenue now that's coming into the states. They need that money. They like it the same way some of them embrace gambling and, and off-track betting um, that uh, had come into some of the states over time. And when they become dependent on that source of income, there, there's, there's an ingrained tendency to push back against anything that's counter to the narrative. And as a result, when you say, by the way, I think I have some problems over here on the number of people I'm seeing in the ER, or I see a correlation with the number of people that might've committed suicide or that, um, instead of embracing that information and running with it, they're looking for reasons to diminish the importance of that because they don't want anyone to upset the apple cart. And I think that's going to be part of the problem here is that we may have some of the states and the leaders who should be responsible dragging their heels when it comes to the potential downsides of cannabis because it's going to be a source of revenue that they like. Gerald, you're amazing. And this is such a wonderful conversation. What's your next project? Uh, you ask a great question. Trisha and I have been talking about that uh, daily for a few, a few months. We are not sure yet. We know 
it would be something different than pharma because I always go on to some subjects of which we know nothing about at all. And then we learned from the ground up. It took a year on learning the, the sciences around this before I could ask intelligent questions of those people I wanted enough to interview. So we're looking at a, a, a couple of projects that might take place about uh, sort of looted art and, and lost uh, remnants of uh, Nazi gold and the start of some early uh, international terrorism and a CIA program that went awry. But I don't know if we're going to be able to nail that down. So that's what we're looking at. <laughs> Interesting. Fascinating. It's wonderful to have a partner uh, in, in doing your adventures. Um, I want to really thank Dr. Jessica Antrocytis uh, for, thank you for your thoughtful question. I wish you success in your fellowship and your career as an emergency medicine and education of medicine. And your questions are certainly the ones that we should be asking. And Gerald, thank you so much for your investigative journalism on pharma. I wish you success and lots of sales on your book and people should buy pharma and learn the details, not just of opioids, but the entire industry of the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Lev. I mean, when I hear from you as a physician, and I've heard from other doctors as well, you know, they say, oh, I knew this, but I didn't know that part over there in that chapter, or I learned this about this, and now I can't wait to, so it's so great because you each pick up something different depending on your area of practice, and I think it makes you, puts you in a position when you are dealing, and you said, you know, you don't deal with the drug reps, so you're lucky, but for those physicians who do, it gives you a little position of um, a different type of authority when you talk to them next time. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.